This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. On this Wednesday, August 16th. No, it's August 17th. Gosh, this month is flying by, isn't it? August 17th, we thank you for joining us on this best of edition of Real Talk. Coming up in just a moment, she is a mover and a shaker, a remarkable story. And she was also in the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. Ashley Collingbull, the first Indigenous woman to hold that honor, joined us back on June 1st to let us know how she got to that point. International supermodel advocate, author, an upcoming book, which she was just getting set to announce when she joined us on June 1st. We're going to introduce you to Ashley Calling. We'll take you back to that interview in just a second. But first, we want to remind you about the people that make this show happen day after day. Apex Automation is putting out the call to engineers across Canada who are looking to make the most of their career and provide intuitive, fully autonomous solutions to industry. Are you dissatisfied where you are now? Do you feel underappreciated? Do you feel like your professional development opportunities are capped? Is there a problem with your corporate culture? Apex Automation could be your next best move. Check them out online at apexautomation.ca. Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge has Alberta's best selection of Chrysler, Jeep, and Ram trucks. You can check them out online or in person today and browse their new and pre-owned selection. Whether you're looking to upsize to make room for a new family member or downsize based on fuel costs, you'll find your perfect fit online or in person at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. Local Environmental Services has been providing waste and recycling management services in Alberta and now Saskatchewan for more than a quarter century. They're still family owned. Some people say it's only garbage, but not to local environmental services. They believe communities deserve better. Whether you're looking for water hauling, vacuum truck services, fencing, portable toilets, or front load bins, you can get your quote today at localenvironmental.ca. Well, our next guest, uh, proudly from Enoch Cree Nation in Treaty 6 territory, uh, she's an actress, uh, a Sports Illustrated swimsuit model, She's a motivational speaker and a soon-to-be author. And as of yesterday, per her big announcement, a CFL in-game host for the Edmonton Elks. What a pleasure to welcome Ashley Collingbull to the show. Welcome to Real Talk, and thanks for making time for us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's been an unbelievable few years for you and, and, and literally, Ash, the millions of Canadians that have followed your career uh, to call you a, a, a Sports Illustrated model doesn't seem to do justice to the fact that that uh, swimsuit edition that just launched a couple of weeks ago, you are the very first Indigenous model to grace those pages in Sports Illustrated history. What a month for you. Yeah, it's honestly, it's going to be such a crazy year for me. There's so much going on. I'm accomplishing a lot, but I'm just so glad I'm opening the door for other Indigenous women to walk through. That's the most important thing to me. Yeah, it's it's almost, I think, surprising to people, to be honest, when I saw that uh, and when I saw you celebrated, and we're talking People Magazine, Times writing about it, Entertainment Tonight is talking about it. All of the huge entertainment outlets are celebrating this achievement of yours. I was also a little surprised that in 2022, there hadn't been an Indigenous model in Sports Illustrated. Uh, did you have a minute, need a minute to wrap your mind around that? Well, when I heard the news that I was the first Indigenous First Nations woman, I was just like really in shock, right? I thought, well, it's been a really long time coming, but I'm glad that it's finally happened. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. How did that door open for you? Was this something where did you have an agent working hard on the file or did, did SI approach you? How did this come about? Well, actually, for this edition, you have to submit yourself. So you're kind of like against thousands and thousands of other women and you submit yourself you do the interviews everything like that and then once you make it past the first round there's more castings and you're meeting all these other incredibly amazing women and then you just wait 
and I got a call probably around like 5.50 in the morning one day and I thought I was still dreaming. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't think it was real. I was like, wait, is, I was like, hello, is this real? I was like, let me just kind of wake up. I'm like, what? Really? Dominican Republic in a week? Okay. I'll be there. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. How does that, how does something like that uh, change your life? I mean, I, w- I would imagine obviously the spotlight becomes quite a bit brighter. Um, you know, who you are, uh, you, it's what a way to introduce yourself to a ton of people, but, but how else does it work? It's crazy. How many doors is it opened already? Mm-hmm. Like with brands, partnerships with people, it's honestly opened the door in so many different ways, but obviously it launched me where people are like, Oh, she's with Sports Illustrated now. And it's it's honestly such a rare thing to be chosen to be with Sports Illustrated. So it's just like a huge accomplishment in itself. Is that something that, just, you, uh, that you dreamed about as a little girl? I mean, being an, literally an international supermodel, was this always on your radar? You know, when I was a little girl, I didn't even dare to dream big. I hmm. didn't think I would be doing anything that I'd be doing now. And it wasn't until after I lived like a really hard life, a hard upbringing of living in poverty and abuse, Um, When I got my second chance at life, I realized that I didn't want to waste it. I wanted to push myself and, you know, push myself to pass my limits. I had to think that I'm limitless. I can accomplish anything I want to. I had to have this why not mentality. And once I accomplished one goal, I thought, well, what's next? What can I do next? You know, so now I'm this girl that just pretty much does a lot of random things when people I'm like, well, let me think of all the things that I do. And now I can say, hey, I'm a CFL game host. I'm like, never thought I would say that either. <laughs> yeah, congratulations. So this this announcement uh, just yesterday, you pushed this out on your Instagram, which means uh, 1.2 million people saw it. No big deal. Uh, but there you are walking out. By the way, can we, t- can we ask about that for a second? Do you ever like look at your, like, your followers and just go 1.2 million what like do you still look in the mirror and go what is going on right now I'm just like really they're entertained with my life (laughs) but you know it's crazy like I have a lot of super fans that like have my face tattooed on their bodies so that itself was a lot to grasp but now I'm like okay this is my life now (laughs) yeah so you're so you're gonna be taken to the field and and by the way the technical producer of this show I'm not sure if you know this John Hicks uh, AKA Johnny infamous. Uh, you have, have you made this now? I don't want to make the announcement on your behalf. Do you want to take you a second? Go ahead well, now. Have yeah, you spoken waiting. to Ashley yet? We, we just he talked in me. the chat. Yeah. But, uh... Cause, cause the two of you are going to be working together. <laughs> we are. Yeah. So I'm, uh, I'm signed on. I'm the official DJ of the Edmonton Elks this season. So it's going to be awesome. I went Woo! down, I went down and met with them and, uh, I was like, you know, so who's hosting this year? And of course they said, Chris Sheets is coming back. Sure. And, and they said, guy, he had a, twinkle in his eye his yeah. manager i'm like what what are you not telling me and he goes well i can't you can't tell anyone but ashley collingville is, is coming on as well and i was like oh my gosh the fans are gonna love like this is just great and uh, you know another uh, big kudos to victor because this is obviously he's the brainchild. victor cooey yeah he's just coming up with so many great ideas to ashley was it uh, was it victor cooey that approached you directly about this it was basically the whole team. And I actually met with him yesterday at Commonwealth and it was like really welcoming. And the thing honestly about the whole Edmonton Elks is that, you know, not only is it my hometown and it was like kind of always a dream to host or be with one of the sports teams here, but with the Edmonton Elks, I'm like, okay, this is really, really happening. But the one thing that I really loved about it, partnering with them was that I get to have my own voice. I get to speak my truth and, you know, make all these suggestions to the team and they're taking it all in. Like yesterday, I told them there is a first ever all indigenous football team that's on reserve and it's the first in Canadian history. I said, they're coming to play a game in Edmonton next Monday. I was like, can the Elks be involved? And right away, they're like a thousand percent. So, you know, when I make those suggestions towards like uplifting indigenous voices, they are all for it. And that's what it's all about, right? Is like bringing that indigenous representation, that diversity, that inclusion. And with me, I get to wear my own jersey with Cree syllabics on the back. And that's like rarely ever seen. And now I'm going to be in this huge space, own it and be proud of who I am. And that's why representation is just so important because other indigenous women and children and men are going to be looking at this and they'll see their faces reflected in mine. And that's just so uplifting to see. Well, it's uh, an amazing opportunity, not just for you, 
but for the football club as well. And you talk about representation. I was reading a couple interviews that you've granted over the last year or so, um, and you told Entertainment Tonight Canada um, that you were just, back in the day, you described yourself as just an insecure girl from the reserve. And I think now people look at you, uh, indigenous people in Canada and non-indigenous people, and they look at you as someone, you know, they would sort of look at you as somebody that has it all, right? The brains, the beauty, the success, the spotlight, the career momentum. It's probably not lost on you that there are thousands of young indigenous boys and girls that are probably have posters of you up on the wall that probably follow your every move. A lot of them, I bet, Ash, are going to be going to football games not necessarily to see the players. They want to see you in action. What does that mean to you? It means a lot. You know, I get messages daily from Indigenous youth and, like, men and women about, like, the inspiration that I'm bringing into their lives. And, you know, it is crazy how many responses I've got from Edmonton Elks fans, the fan base that has reached out, and then people who haven't been fans that are now fans because they want to come because I'm going to be there. So, you know, at first I was just like, wow, you know, I knew this was – such a big deal but it's even bigger than that and I'm just so proud to be a part of this organization and I can't wait to see what kind of season this is going to be and I just know we're going to kick some I don't know if I can swear no oh, you can say whatever booty. the fuck you want yeah no problem you can say <laughs> we're going like, to kick, gonna kick some, some ass, ass. <laughs> yeah, yeah and you know what I told you this in the email last night I'm, I'm really excited too we before the team even brought on Victor Cooey I mean even under previous administration I'd said on the radio um, I used to work for the rights holder right and so you know the conversation had to be kind of curated uh when it came to the discussion around the name change with that franchise and some of the controversy yeah. in, including people living in in canada's north and indigenous first nations inuit communities etc and i said on the, i said i'll tell you what i felt like and i'm not a huge football fan in the sense that like, i mean i love going to games trust me i love the experience i never played i don't really totally <laughs> understand the nuances of the game but as a fan i said i'll tell you what if this team commits to a rebrand, if this team commits to renaming this franchise and does it well, we'll be first in line to buy season tickets. And I said, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. I mean, I think they did a marvelous job of, of rebranding, of retaining the, the history that so many people wanted to, to protect, the, the rich history of decades. And, you know, like, you know, how many Grey Cups? Like more than 14. a dozen, 14 Grey Cups. Like unbelievable, yeah. right? And Warren Moon and five in a row and all of these legends that have come out of this franchise. Um, but at the same time, we are in our family. I mean, our six year old so excited to be there in the stands. He can't believe it. There's this the big challenge for this football club and for this league, for that matter, is to get that next generation of fans in the seats. Right. And if you're going to do it, you want to do it right. You know, you want to yes. do it in a way that's really going to resonate with people. And I maybe use this cliche too often, but you do want to have your finger on the pulse of where things are going. And I think the franchise mm -hmm. has made a few strong moves. Uh, in the right direction. I joked to Johnny with no offense to him. I said, I think you're the best signing the team's made in 10 years. <laughs> no, offense well, to, no offense to the players, <laughs> but, I, but I think it's going to mean a lot to the fan base to have you there. Um, Sharon Morin's watching us. She's a big fan of yours on our live chat. She says, don't forget, Ashley was Mrs. Universe in 2015. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was that that feels like I mean, I remember that was kind of one of the big splashes for you, wasn't it? That must have gone a long mm. way in getting your name out there. Oh, yeah. And it was just because of how I use my platform as well. Like I use my voice. I could have just easily celebrated and went home and been with my family. But for me, it was about like, what can I use with this momentum, with this platform? I'm like, my voice can really resonate with so many people. And then at the time, you know, I just brought up a lot of uh, indigenous issues that we were dealing with in Canada. And for me, you know, if, even if it took me to call out certain government officials, I'm like, I'm going to do it because you know, I'm just trying to fight for what's right and fight for our people and fight for our land and fight for our rights. And if I have to use my voice to do it and my platform, then let's go. <laughs> would you ever would you ever consider a career in in politics or, or can you see yourself taking it in a completely different direction? A lot of people ask me that. And me, when I look at politics, I always think about voting the lesser of the evils. And mm. I don't want people to see me as an evil person. Uh. But, you know, but um, I feel like in pageants, it was basically politics and in, like, it's the same thing. Like, for me, I would always say politics is like pageants and suits. So I feel like I've been there already. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, you, you've got a book coming out. Is that right? Yes, I signed my first book deal with HarperCollins Publishing, and that's like really big deal too as well. I'm like still celebrating that. It's going to be an autobiography on my life, but in like extreme detail. 
and it will be coming out in fall 2023. So I'll be an author next year, which is, I still got to wrap my head around everything else. And now I got to wrap my head around that. So it's just, Wow, it's a really exciting time in my life. Well, I have no doubt you'll have uh, your hubby or, or, or some loved one there to roll camera while you open that box. It's always the video people love to see an author seeing their very first book in print, the very first hardcover that they'll mail to your front door. How special will that be? That'll be crazy. Yeah. My husband has literally been that person on the side the whole time, just like taking pictures, watching all my reactions to everything that's been happening and just being like the biggest support I have. Yeah, unbelievable. Well, Ashley, I mean, we're just really thrilled for you we're excited for the elks franchise that's exciting in the city of edmonton too everybody in treaty six and and i know with enoch Cree Nation as well we spoke to uh, chief billy morin just a few days ago on the show it's great to connect with him and i know there's a lot of really great things happening with the first nation um in closing can, can i just ask you to to dig deep for a sec you talked about your own personal history and, and you talked about the challenges and, and the abuse and and what you had to overcome and i'm certain that at least one person is going to listen to this interview on the podcast or they're going to see it on YouTube and you're going to be describing their circumstance currently. What would be your message to them? What would be something you would say to them to encourage them? Yeah, you know, when I was living in that hard time, when I was living through abuse and poverty, I, I didn't love myself. I had no self-confidence and I believed that this is where I was going to be stuck forever. When I eventually got out, I had to learn to reconnect with who I am I had to learn to let go of the past let go of things that I can't control because it's not my future anymore and I had to realize that I had to learn to love myself and appreciate myself for the way that I am and my culture honestly it saved my life it pushed me through having that connection with my culture it connected me closer with my spirit and it helped me stay on the red road and now I'm I'm thriving because I you know really relied on my identity and because of my culture, I'm this strong, empowered woman. And, you know, culture can really connect you with who you are. But you have to learn to let go of what you can't control and always love and appreciate yourself for the way you were created. Because you were created that way for a reason. Hmm. Beautifully said. That's Ashley Collingbull. Thanks for making time for us. And we'll see you out there this summer on the football field. Yes, let's go out. There you go. <laughs> Thanks, Ash. Have a great rest of your week. That's Ashley Collingbull. You can follow her uh, along with more than a million other people. What an unbelievable story. Ashley Collingbull, truly remarkable. Looking back on her time as a, a, quote, little girl on the reserve, a girl without self-esteem, a survivor of abuse and circumstances most people couldn't wrap their minds around, and now an international figure. It reminds us of a, another conversation that we had. This was on July 11th with Connie Walker. Uh, Connie is the host, the creator, the producer of Stolen, the Saint uh, Stolen Surviving Saint Michael's. You remember this podcast series? Powerful stuff. It all started with a story. Her dad, a residential school survivor and former RCMP officer, told her. Connie had to learn more, and what she uncovered is truly remarkable. She tells us all about it in a must-catch interview. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, a word from our Real Talk sponsors. Eden Landscaping is bringing outdoor spaces to life. In fact, that's what they've been doing for more than 20 years. Mike and his team are experts from modern to traditional design and everything in between. Their projects have one thing in common, happy clients. You can check out their portfolio online today at landscapeedmonton.ca and take the first step toward bringing your outdoor space to life with Eden Landscaping. The Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park want to remind you they have a brand new signature stack burger collection ready for you to check out. Of course, all the classic favorites like that Dairy Queen double cheeseburger and some of the new ones like the signature steakhouse stacker with that onion ring on top. Of course, the big lineup of Blizzard speaks for itself. And don't forget to grab a box of Buster Bars the next time you're at the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, New Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. 
For more than 65 years, Friesen Brothers has been putting really great food on family tables across the province of Alberta. Still family-owned, Friesen Brothers is a proud member of 16 different communities, where on the first of the month, you can take 15% off every grocery order of more than $75. Friesen Brothers, Alberta-grown, Alberta-owned. I hate you, residential school. I hate you. You're a monster, a huge, hungry monster built with steel bones, built with cement flesh. You're a monster built to de- devour innocent native children. You're a cold-hearted monster, cold as the cement floors. You have no love, no gentle atmosphere. Your ugly face grooved with red bricks. Your monster eyes glare from grimy windows. Monster eyes so evil. Monster eyes watch and terrified children cover with shame. I hate you, residential school. I hate you. That's the voice of Dennis Saddleman. He's a survivor of the Kamloops Indian Residential School. And his voice featured on the Gimlet Media Spotify podcast, Stolen, Surviving St. Michael's. Now, it's an investigation into the St. Michael's Indian Residential School in Duck Lake, Saskatchewan, which operated for more than 100 years. Connie Walker's dad went there. So did her uncles, her aunts. As a matter of fact, her grandparents attended that school as well. And when she heard a story from her brother about her dad's experience in his professional life as an RCMP member years after attending that school she embarked on a journalistic journey that I suspect she had no idea would impact her and her growing audience to the degree that it did myself included what an honor to welcome journalist Connie Walker to Real Talk thank you for making time for us this morning it's so good to see your face Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. No, I've, your, your eight-part series uh, released week by week, and I, I was one of those that as soon as an episode would be released, I, I would jump right back into it, but I, I, would, I would prepare myself uh, before I did because of the power of these stories. For members of our audience that may not be familiar uh, with your journey and with Stolen, can you tee this up for us, Connie, how this came about, how it all got started based on a social media post from your brother? Yeah, I was just scrolling through um, on my phone on social media one day, and I read a post that was made by my brother, Hal Cameron. And it was a story about our dad, our late father, Howard Cameron, that I had never heard before. Um, And Hal wrote that when my dad was in the RCMP, he was a special constable in the RCMP in the late 1970s, stationed somewhere in rural Saskatchewan. Um, He saw a vehicle on the side of the road swerving and he thought that the driver may be impaired and so he pulled over this vehicle and when he got to the driver's side window he realized that he recognized the driver as a priest who had abused him at residential school and my dad beat up the priest on the side of the road that night and he how he told Hal that he expected to get in trouble expected for there to be a complaint but nothing ever happened and it just became a story that he then shared with my brother years and years later and then my brother shared um, last May after the news from Kamloops broke and when I read that post I mean I, I I instantly felt ill because I didn't know that my dad had been abused at residential school I didn't, and it made me realize I didn't know anything about his residential school experience. I didn't know where he went or for how long. And, and I felt like, you know, I I've been a journalist for 20 years and that that was something I should know. I should be connecting those dots in my own family. And, and that was the beginning of our podcast. So you start traveling, uh, you start hitting the road and, and meeting with, uh, you know, your aunties and your uncles and people uh, that also survived, you know, I would say attended, they survived uh, that residential school in, in search of information about who this priest was, you know, what was his name, what was his identity, what, what was the initial connection to your dad, you want to learn more about your dad's experience uh, as a young boy at this school, I, I, I believe that he was sent there when he was six years old, uh, six years old. 
But the more people that you talk to, and, and I'm trying to find the balance here, Connie, just to say that I, I, I really want to make sure that people listen to your podcast. So I don't want to talk too much about the specifics uh, because the, it's a journey as an audience member. It's a journey as a listener. But the more people that you talk to, the more you learn about the magnitude of how this specific school uh, in Duck Lake impacted not just your family members of that generation, but for generations to come. Yeah. And I just have to say, I'm so excited to talk to you about it as well, because this is something that I have been like living and breathing and just, you know, sitting with for months and months and months now. And especially now that the podcast is over and we're not working on episodes, although actually we may be working on a bonus episode, but, you know, mm -hmm. it feels like the infrastructure to talk about it goes away, but my interest doesn't. I'm still so deeply invested. I feel like obviously this is such a personal story. Um, and, and I'm just so grateful to, to have it out in the world now and to actually be able to share it with people and then to talk to people like you who, who like made the time to listen, like, I'm just so grateful that, that people are listening and, and hearing this story. But, you know, I think that as a journalist, it was like this strange journey for me to kind of embark on, obviously, because it, it is so personal. Yeah. It is such a personal story. It's my dad's story. Like, you know, what happened to him at six years old, you know, that that stayed with him for that long. And and I, as I began to uncover more about him through these interviews with my dad's brothers and sisters who also went to the school, I began to see like just how connected I was to this story as well. Like just how connected, um, you know, how our relationship was was shaped by his experience in that residential school, because like so many survivors, he really struggled for a long time. You know, you go through um, this kind of experience at six years old. He was a native Cree speaker when he was dropped off at St. Michael's. And, and, and what I heard from family members and survivors there is like, it's, it's just this nightmare situation that children were put in where, you know, my family members immediately started talking about, you know, the hunger that they experienced in the school, the loneliness, the fear, um, the, the punishment, the physical abuse by priests and nuns who ran the school. The school was run by um, a Catholic order of oblate priests called, or priests called the Oblates of Mary Immaculate, and nuns um, from a from a local uh, organization as well. And but then you know I immediately started also hearing names of, of priests um, who were allegedly abusive to children at the school. In one of my very first interviews, my my dad's brother, my uncle Bill, and his wife, my auntie Lorraine, told me that you know it wasn't just my dad who was abused at residential school; that one of my other uncles was also abused, um, and they named a priest that then became kind of a focus of our investigation. And I, I I'm like you; I don't want to give away too much, but yeah. I also feel like it's important to know that like um, that we find out that he's still alive and that, that that becomes a part of the journey as well as like really trying to like, not only understand what they all went through as children at the school, but then also, you know, understand what happened to the alleged abusers after they left these schools. Your conversation, your interview with one of these alleged abusers, uh, now in the, in, in the dark winter of his life, if life is in seasons, uh, I, I think uh, it's safe to say that his is near the end. Um, and, and there's important conversation in the podcast as well about prosecuting these crimes. And I think that that's a conversation that needs to happen. You know, there, there's a point that's made in the podcast where we say if we're still going after war criminals, you know, people that were running gas chambers and operating Nazi concentration camps in World War II, there's absolutely no reason why we can't go after alleged abusers that were propping up and, and for a matter as a matter of fact, uh, administrating Canada's residential school system for decades. Your conversation with one of those alleged abusers is one of the most powerful interviews I've ever heard in my entire life. Um, but it was but you spoke to I think it was it was it 28, almost 30 survivors, uh, you yeah. and your team of journalists and producers. And one of them uh, was a man by the name of Eugene Arcand, uh, who warned you, he said, don't play with this right yeah. uh what did he say yeah. right, hang on a second i wanted to pick this yeah. up off the floor because I, I scribbled look at this it's a it's it's a magazine i had and i'm this has nothing to do with you but i'm look at this there's there's chicken scratch all over the cover because <laughs> it's what I, i've been listening i'm Love scribbling it. down notes as i was listening to your your conversation with eugene and i've been carrying it he said don't become an expert on the backs of our misery and when he said that i just went Whew. yeah 
Yeah, so how did, was... how did you know? Because you were wrestling what you said, whether or not it like how much of my dad's story is mine to tell you wondered aloud. Yeah. I mean, that conversation with Eugene, uh, it, it really shook me. It really it really gave me pause. It really made me think about how I was approaching this story. You know, like I, I, I feel like um, I've, I've been a journalist now for over 20 years and always interested in telling these stories. But for a long time, there was very little interest in hearing stories from our communities. And, and as I've been given more and more opportunities to take them on, I've been thinking a lot about what is the approach? Like, how do you tell stories from your own community? How do you deal with the, the trauma that inevitably you encounter? Because so many Indigenous people have experiences with trauma. And, and especially with residential school survivors, I think what Eugene was saying was like, you know, they have been ignored and misunderstood and really gaslit for so much of their lives. You know, they left these schools um, as, as teenagers and then for years and years and years, decades, you know, um, what they endured in those schools was hidden, was not talked about, was they were not believed. And what Eugene was saying was that, you know, survivors need to be empowered to tell their own stories that, that, you know, that, that this, you know, he was so generous, I think as well, just in terms of like understanding and helping me understand how as intergenerational survivors, I've also been impacted. But I think what he told us about, you know, that, that they can do this, they can tell these stories. It really shaped the way that we, um, you know, the podcast laid out in the very next episode, we decided to, essentially hand the microphone over to survivors. We spoke to 28 survivors from St. Michael's and we wanted it to be, you know, to have them feel like they were empowered to tell their stories themselves. And it's a non-narrated episode. It's, you know, it's them essentially um, reconstructing the school through their memories and their voices and telling the truth about what they endured there as children. And that, that directly came from that conversation with Eugene. Um, and, and I think, you know, as a journalist, I think you're always thinking about, you know, how to be trauma informed and how to to approach story sensitively, mm. especially ones like these. But that was such a lesson that I feel like is just so applicable in my life as well as my work. There's there's things that you'll hear uh, as an audience member listening to something uh, like Stolen, Surviving St. Michael's, this this journey this journalistic journey, I keep referring because that's what it felt like. It felt like it was like you were learning about your family and you we were privileged enough. And I felt like it was an honor and, and almost there's a responsibility as an audience member too. what are you going to do with this information? You know, as an indigenous person may have it will have a different response as a as a as a privileged middle class white person that will have a different response, perhaps than an immigrant to Canada that maybe wasn't aware of the residential school legacy, et cetera, et cetera. But you're talking about things like nutritional experiments being carried out on children, homemade electric chairs being used for discipline. I'm sitting there thinking like I can't even imagine when when you use the word survivor to describe a an audience member here when I was introducing you. They said, imagine that having to survive school. Uh, it, 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 it opens up, I suppose, the onus is on us uh, as people living in Canada right now. To, to, it demands uh, that we understand what these survivors have been living with, the challenges they encountered, the intergenerational aspect of this. And then to state the obvious, Connie, you know what I'm sitting there thinking as you're telling these stories? This is only one of the schools this is only one yeah yeah no i i i feel it's shameful that in 2022 um we're just learning this history about saint michael's like you said it was open for a hundred years survivors um have already told a lot of these stories you know as part of the residential school settlement that happened in the early 2000s and 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 as part of that that settlement in order to receive compensation for the abuse they experience, they had to talk about it through these government hearings. They had adjudicators, and if they were believed, they were compensated. But as part of that, you know, what they also did was they named their abusers. And, and the government hired private investigators to track down these alleged abusers, um, but not to investigate them criminally or to, to, you know, try to hold them accountable, but to invite them to participate in that process. And so, you know, I, as a journalist, I, I feel like I, I just feel so much regret that I didn't look at this sooner, that I didn't 
you know, pay more attention earlier because what's happened is that the window for accountability, because, you know, what, what we uncovered at St. Michael's was just, you know, after that interview with the priest that you, you mentioned, the priest who we had heard multiple allegations against of sexual abuse in my dad's family, you know, um, he denied abusing kids at the school, but he talked about abuse at the school in a way that, that, um, you know, I found disturbing, you know, he, he said that he actually saw other adults at the school um, sexually abusing children. And it made me want to understand just how widespread was the abuse at this school? Like how many, like if there were three, three people in my dad's family um, who experienced sexual abuse for people that I, that I, that I know of, um, how widespread was the abuse? And what we uncovered was just shocking and disturbing and, and also infuriating because you know that the window for accountability is, is small. You know, there are only a few of these alleged abusers who are still alive. And, and I think that the beginning, like the, the very first step we can all take is to understand the truth, to hear their stories, to give survivors your time and your attention and your space to finally um, be heard and, and understood. You're, talk, you're talking to that former priest and uh, I, again, I won't spoil it, but but he says, you know, he's talking about, I, I suppose, his humanity or his fallibility or whatever. And he goes, yeah, well, sometimes I lie. And you say, are you lying to me right now? And I just stopped in my tracks. I was like, wow. I mean, it's just unbelievable. People need to to check it out. You talk about being a trauma-informed journalist, and that's important. Uh, in episode eight of eight, uh, which was just released a short time ago, uh, you get very personal and uh, I have to assume that this is unlike, I mean, you, as mentioned, your journalistic career has extended more than 20 years. You've worked on other high profile projects. Um, this, unlike anything else you've ever done before, once the reporting was finished and you start going into the editing booth and you start cutting it and putting it together and you've had time to think about it. And, and I'm sure it's visited you in your dreams and I'm sure it visits you in your waking hours as well. How how would you describe the impact of this project on you personally, not but as a as a person? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been the hardest thing I've ever worked on, like without a doubt. You know, I think I think the the hardest thing was really, you know, hearing hearing the stories that my family shared with me, you know, because these are things that we never talked about. Like, you know, I, my, my dad is one of 15 kids, 15 of his brothers and sisters who went to that school. So all my aunts and uncles, they, they had a similar, if not, you know, the same experience as my dad, but we never talked about it. And so hearing the stories from them about what they endured as children, about the, the hunger, the fear, the loneliness, the, the abuse, um, was so difficult and, and holding and feeling the responsibility of hearing those stories and, and wanting to share them in a way that was respectful and trauma-informed felt like such a huge weight. Uh, and I always feel that responsibility, but it, I think it's, it's just magnified by so much when it's your own family. And, and then it also became an exploration into my own childhood trauma. You know, I, I mentioned like in the first episode, actually, you know, how I witnessed violence at home from my dad, how he was physically abusive and, and starting to understand and connect the dots um, was such a, like, it was such a difficult thing. And, and then understanding other experiences that I had and how they were connected to the abuse that happened at St. Michael's, it, it was um, just heart-wrenching. And, and, but also I have to say like, so healing to actually um, shine a light on something and to have a process to talk about it and to have the infrastructure to to go through it. And throughout making of the podcast, you know, I, I also, I, I'm seeing a therapist every week, a trauma uh, specialized, like a, a therapist that focuses on trauma. And I'm, and, and I have such an incredible support system um, through my family and through my partner and, and at work, it, it has felt like it has been, you know, it sounds kind of cliche or cheesy to say, but a really healing journey for me as well to to kind of expose this truth and to understand it and connect the dots. And and as I've been like, I, I, I feel like I strive to be a, a trauma informed journalist. And I feel like, you know, that's not something that I learned about um, in school or on the job. 
uh, until very recently. But one of the things that I've been learning about is, is that one of the ways that you can heal from, from trauma is to talk about it, mm-hmm. is to talk about it in an environment where you feel safe, where you're given agency, where you're given respect. Um, and, and that I feel like is something that I try to, an environment that I try to create for people that I'm interviewing and talking to, but also one that I, I feel like I had in, in, in going on this journey. So it has been difficult, but it has also felt like such a gift in, in so many ways. In, in each of your episodes, uh, there's uh, at the beginning a, a note uh, that, that there will be vivid or, or you know detailed descriptions of, of uh, sex abuse, physical abuse against children. Uh, you you warn the audience, uh, you know, essentially. And then at the end, um, you provide some resources uh, for people that may be living with or perhaps have survived uh, that type of abuse. And then you invite people that may have information about specifically about St. Michael's in, in Duck Lake to contact you. Uh, I'm curious to know how many people did, what you heard from other survivors. And I have to imagine you've heard from survivors of other residential schools across the country as well. How did this land with, or how did this impact as far as you can tell uh, survivors across the country? Yeah, you know, I, I think um, over like the overwhelming reaction has been a positive reaction. And I feel like what, you know, it starts out as a very personal story about me and my dad. Um, but I think that what I quickly realized and what I heard from so many people, even after the first few episodes came out was how, this was also their story, you know, that so many people had the same experience. And I remember, you know, in 2015, I was um, a reporter at, uh, for CBC television and I was um, covering the final event of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And I remember Justice Sinclair, uh, who was the chief commissioner of the TRC, um, telling a room packed full of media and intergenerational survivors and survivors of residential school that there's not a single Indigenous person in Canada who's not been touched by the legacy of residential schools. And, and I knew that was true, but I had, hadn't connected the dots in my own family. And, and I feel like what I've learned and what I've seen is like how, you know, this is not just me and my dad's story. This is the story of almost every uh, Indigenous person and survivor and their family. Like, We've all been impacted by this legacy in, in so many heartbreaking ways, but it's also just the time right now where we're starting to connect the dots and we're starting to unpack what's happened. And the response that I've heard from community and, and family has just been just so overwhelmingly positive and, and just makes me feel so grateful uh, to the survivors for sharing. But also, you know, I, I feel like as a journalist, I'm, I'm also hearing from, you know, from from people who um, who who knew or know some of the people who worked at St. Michael's, and you know, I, I I still feel like there's more reporting to be done. Like there's more, you know, we, there's still more work that we need to do. And and I think your point about how this is one residential school is is so important. You know, like of course St. Michael's deserves this attention. Of course St. Michael's like it was so important for me personally to do an investigation at Swan School. And what we found was just staggering. But it only makes me want to know more. I want to know about every residential school. I want to know how many alleged abusers um, you know, or, or, or were at these schools, how many of them were ever prosecuted? I know it's a very, that number is really small, but the window of accountability hasn't closed. There is still opportunity there for, for us to expose people and to expose the truth and for people to learn about what survivors went through. I mean, for perspective, you know, in your reporting, you talk about, uh, you know, credible accusations and 45 people accused uh, just out of St. Michael's residential school alone, including, I think, if I remember correctly off the top of my head, 13 nuns, 17 priests, uh, yeah. as well as staff, 45 people credibly accused in one residential school. I mean, if if that's not a perspective check, I don't know what is. As a matter of fact, it's staggering, uh, to be honest with you, and I can't even really wrap my mind around it. Um, that, and that's that is, and that's also like that's sexual abuse. Like those those are forty five people who are accused of sexual abuse. And in in the work, like what we were able to uncover, there there were more than two hundred and twenty allegations of sexual abuse um, against those forty five individuals. And many of them were um, had multiple allegations against them. And some of them, you know, were not just one time occurrences. Some of them was like were instances of abuse that occurred over days, weeks, and even years. 
I'm sure you're aware. Obviously, you're aware that the Pope uh, will be visiting uh, Canada uh, to, to make an apology for the Catholic Church's role in these residential schools. Uh, one of the stories that people are covering in, in Alberta right now as, as the Pope will visit Masquachis, a community uh, just south of Edmonton, as a matter of fact, about an hour and a half south of Edmonton, is that they're finally getting some roads paved down there, I guess, so the Pope doesn't have to have a bumpy road, metaphorically or literally, uh, through this apology. Where's your head at with regards to this papal apology? You know, I, I really feel like it's it's the space should be given to survivors to talk about what, what they want and need and, and, and would like at this point personally. Um, you know, I, as a journalist, I find it really interesting, especially the places that he's visiting. Um, uh, the, the priest who I interviewed, who was accused, uh, the Oblates told us he was accused, credibly accused 16 times by 16 children of sexual abuse against him. Um, I, I'm, I'm just, my mind is blown that the Pope is going to be um, retracing his steps in, in so many ways. He was he ministered in Masquachis for many years. Um, this priest uh, who had these allegations against him. He also helped start the Native Pastoral Center, where the priest or where the Pope is going to be making um, a, a stop. And he also uh, was at Lac La Biche, where which is also where the Pope is going. And just I feel like that is just illustrative to me of of just. The, the, the reckoning that needs to happen within the Catholic Church around, uh, you know, these priests who have been, by their own admission, credibly accused, like, multiple times, like, by 16 survivors of, of sexual abuse. And that was information that, that just, you know, that, that would never have been known if we hadn't, if we hadn't done this work, you know, when we first asked the, the Oblates, the Catholic Order of Priests that ran St. Michael's, they actually ran 48 residential schools as well, across the country about this specific priest. The first response we got back was that, that they were unaware of any allegations against him. And the second response was that they had asked around and nobody else had heard of any allegations against him. And then and then once we presented them with one of these um, documents, these court documents that we got access to that showed uh, a student at St. Michael's accused this priest of brutal sexual abuse on a daily basis for years, um, they reviewed their legal records and found that he had been accused actually 23 times uh, through the IAP process and 16 of those allegations were found to be credible allegations of sexual abuse, not just at St. Michael's, that they were actually um, children from other residential schools that he visited that also say they were sexually abused by him. And, and so, you know, I'm, I, I'm thinking about him and I'm thinking about the survivors who, who he, uh, you know, was found to be credibly accused of abusing and, and, and that that was one priest, that this is one school. And, and I don't know, I feel like we need to better understand the truth before we can have more serious conversations about reconciliation. Uh, and and I, I think it's up to survivors to, to decide what they would like to see from the Catholic Church and from the Pope himself. Yeah. Um, you just found out a few days ago, uh, this is a bit of a hard swerve to it, to a different project that you worked on uh, that, that obviously really resonated with a lot of people, and that's Finding Cleo. Uh, I think you just found out a few days ago. Isn't that true that Rolling Stone, yeah. kind of Rolling Stone, kind of in in my mind, the authority on pretty powerful long form journalism for a lot of years, uh, has included your project Finding Cleo in their list of the twenty five best true crime podcasts of all time. Uh, first of all, congratulations! Uh, Thank you. Considering how popular the true crime genre is in podcasts right now, that's a hell of an achievement. But what did that say to you? I mean, it's, I feel like such an honor, obviously, and I just can't, I really can't believe it. You know, I, I feel like at the beginning of my career, um, you, you know, there was zero interest in Indigenous stories and Indigenous issues. And, and, and I feel, or there was like, I feel like this misconception that people wouldn't find them interesting, that they weren't important to Canadians, that it wasn't important history to learn. And, and I feel like that is such validation that, that of course, our stories are important. Of course, it's, it's, of course they matter. Of course, uh, stories like my father's, like Cleo Smagenis, like Alberta Williams, like Jermaine Charlo, you know, th that these are real people at the heart of every podcast that I do. And, and that people now understand just how important it is to learn the truth about this shared history. You know, I think that so many Indigenous stories have been 
misrepresented or underrepresented for so long in Canada. And, and it's long overdue that we start telling these stories. And, and I think it should be, you know, Indigenous people who are, who are leading that charge. And, and I'm so grateful to get to, to do this work. As mentioned, uh, Stolen Surviving St. Michael's is a Gimlet Media production, a Spotify original. Um, are you able to tell us about anything that, that you're working on right now or what we can expect next from Connie Walker? Well, I'm, I'm going to go home to Saskatchewan in, uh, in a week, and I'm going to have some vacation and downtime with my family, which I'm so excited about. Um, it's been, a, it's been a, like a lot of work to get this podcast out. But as I said, like, you know, I think that everybody on my team, we, we really feel like there's more reporting to do um, on this story. And so we want to we wanna keep, keep going. You know, we're hoping um, that we can get a, a, at least one bonus episode out. But, and then also, I think, you know, I, I, I want to continue this work. I feel like there there are so many stories and issues that need to be uncovered. And, and I feel really grateful to be supported to do this right now. Well, Connie, it's an absolute honor uh, to have an opportunity to welcome you to the show. I'm such a it feels weird to, in the context of how serious this is to say I'm a fan of your work, but but I am. Um, and let me just say that it's uh, some of the most powerful journalism that I've ever experienced. And it is an experience. I use that word intentionally. Um, this is music to my ears from Tracy, who's watching us live on YouTube right now. She says, I'm going to have to check out this podcast on my vacation in August, which is great. And she, Tracy's not going to have to not going to have to wait every week for a new episode. As of June 28th, when, when episode eight came out on Spotify exclusively, people can now listen to all eight in a row. They're about 40 minutes apiece. And uh, really powerful stuff. I think every Canadian uh, needs to hear this podcast. Uh, Connie Walker, a journalist and the host of Stolen, Surviving St. Michael's. Thank you so much for your time and your perspective. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. I, I really appreciate you listening to the podcast, but also making space for us to have this conversation. That, that means a lot. It's an honor, my friend. Thanks. If you've been catching Real Talk for quite some time, you know that every Wednesday we head out to the mountains, so to speak. We fill our proverbial lungs with the fresh air that only Jasper National Park can offer. My Jasper memories back on July 20th reminded you about the Jasper Dark Sky Festival. It's coming up this fall. You still have time to get your tickets. You've got to check out what Jasper, and in this context, only Jasper has to offer. Plus, the Wetterer family from Saskatchewan shared their Jasper family trip photos with us, which we love. We feature those in My Jasper Memories coming up in just a second. Park Power is your friendly local utilities provider. Whether you're looking for electricity, natural gas, or internet, or maybe all three, you owe it to yourself to compare rates today on their website, parkpower.ca. Along with it comes a charitable contribution. What other utilities provider does that? Don't forget when you sign up, the promo code 2022-REALTALK gets you $70 off your first bill from Park Power. Kubi Energy wants to remind Canadians there's a $40,000 interest-free loan available from the federal government for homeowners looking to install solar. It's never been more energy efficient nor affordable to go green at home. The team at Kubi is experts. They handle all the paperwork and of course it's professionally installed. Get your free quote today at kubienergy.ca. Athabasca University is Canada's online university. Their world-class accredited online programs and courses offer you the flexibility to learn at your own pace on a schedule that suits your lifestyle. So whether you're looking to upgrade with a certain course or perhaps kick off an undergraduate program, you can do it with the confidence that it's going to suit your lifestyle. Learn more today at AthabascaU.ca. Covenant Health has made a huge difference for patients and their loved ones for more than 160 years. And for 30 years, the Covenant Foundation Lottery has played a role in making a difference for those in their care. Every ticket purchased has a far-reaching impact. Thanks to you, Covenant Health is at the forefront of technological innovations and a leader in palliative and urgent care. Get your tickets today at covenantfoundationlottery.ca. Every Wednesday, 
courtesy of our friends at Tourism Jasper, we have an opportunity to, we never ignore the news cycle. We can't. We want to be informed and engaged, but sometimes you just need a break. And you want to head outside. And a big part of that is Jasper's legacy as a dark sky preserve. I feel like this is, I'll do my best with my words, but this is one you're going to want to watch on YouTube. Uh, a time-lapse video. What you're seeing right now is that Jasper sky, including the northern lights. <laughs> this levitating movie magic will soon dazzle the Rockies for the second year in a row this October. So now's the time you want to think about it. Mark your calendar. The Jasper Dark Sky Festival will have a hypnotizing light show. Hundreds of choreographed drones moving in sync above the mountain town. What? The annual two-week Dark Sky Festival runs October 14th through the 23rd. will also draw a stellar lineup of space and science stars who will tackle the hottest topics of the day like space tourism and the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. New to the festival this year and coming from around the planet, authors, astrophysicists, artists, Edmonton's own AI expert Patrick Pilarski will be there bringing his research on how bionic limbs can help amputees. Such a cool area of study. There will be indigenous events, a symphony under the stars with, of course, the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra, kid-friendly rocket launches. I think that'll get a bit of attention with the younger real talkers. And then live and interactive science demonstrations with the TELUS World of Science, stargazing using the most powerful telescopes in the Rockies, astrophotography, guided night hikes, foodie experiences, and more. Just check out jasperdarksky.com, or rather jasperdarksky.com. John, can I try that again? JasperDarkSky.travel. JasperDarkSky.travel is where you can learn more about the Jasper Dark Sky Festival. Now, I wanted to stretch this My Jasper memory a little bit longer because we got this amazing message from a real talker. Please, I'll take a nap. Can we get, can we, can ah. we get into these Instagram photos? Yeah. How cool are these? Uh, we were telling you earlier today uh, about the family th that was in touch with us and basically said, hey, listen, we've, we've got our own uh, My Jasper memory, and we love these. We love when you're in touch with us to let us know exactly what your family's done to enjoy Jasper. And so this was courtesy of Leanne, and she let us know about their family's trip out, her husband Rod and then Abigail and Kennedy, their kids from Saskatoon said they were following a, a road trip plan. Saskatoon to Stony Plain, to Jasper, to Salmon Arm, to Vernon, to Nelson, to Fernie, back to Saskatoon. What a loop. They said that Moline Lake boat tour to Spirit Island was absolutely awesome. She says we booked it after hearing about it on Real Talk and then viewing my wife Carrie Skelton's Instagram reel. She says it was just as beautiful. You can check out Leanne's My Jasper memory on her Instagram profile. I know she wouldn't mind. She's at Leanne... W-E-W-E-W-E-R. And uh, you can find it, of course, there. That Moline Lake Spirit Island boat trip. Have you ever gone on that? No, I haven't. Dude. What? It is. Take me. I should take you, you on You, me, this music? Come on. <laughs> Maybe we'll just bring <laughs> the <like>. light. <laughs> what most people don't know is that the guitarist is actually sitting right beside me yeah. on a stool. Yeah. Birkenstocks. Mm -hmm. Hemp pants. We really should give him credit one day. We should. Camera. We should give him credit. Anyway, Leanne, we love that you shared your photos with us. If you have a My Jasper memory, please do hashtag My Jasper in Real Talk RJ, and your family's adventure could be featured a Wednesday right here on Real Talk. We love seeing your photos from your family trips, your adventures, your outings, hiking, fishing, golfing relaxing, whatever. Make sure you use the hashtag MyJasper and RealTalkRJ. You could be featured on a future edition of My Jasper Memories. We're back at it tomorrow with another best of edition of Real Talk. We're going to take a look at online security. A quick heads up for parents and caregivers you won't want to miss. In the meantime, check out our website, ryanjesperson.com. That's your home for our Real Talk archives and, of course, our merch, where you can pick up Real Talk toques, fitted T-shirts, crescent mugs, golf balls, and more. We'll talk to you soon.
Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, Executive Producer Josh Dunford, Technical Producer John Hicks, General Manager Katie Cook Chivers, Account Coordinator Lawrence Durlego, Human Resources Lena Shepard, Website Design Mike Johnston, VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandy Morin, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a relay project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com.